Um, Ephesians 2 is what we're going to do. We're going to work our way through it. I'm going to make a couple points, and then we're going to gather together um, around the, the, uh, the table. Um, last night, my wife and I went to see, um, I'm going to try to be real clear, and uh, <laughs> she's giving me the evil eye. Um, last night, um, we went to see a, um, well, a couple, let me rewind a little bit. A couple years ago, we went to New York for some conference, and we went to a Broadway show called Aida. And um, I'm not exactly a Broadway show type of a guy, um, but I was there and I was in the moment and I was loving it. I mean, we bought the soundtrack and everything. I'm just, I'm singing along, I'm lip syncing, I'm crying. Really incredible, really incredible talent, um, really incredible, you know, stage and all that kind of stuff. If you've ever seen a Broadway show, you know what I'm talking about. Well, um, we got wind that Aida was coming to the River Center last night, and so we were all fired up about it, and um, we, 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 we bought the tickets ahead of time, and we went, and we got there, and right before it started, Jennifer elbows me, and she goes, I don't think this is exactly the same version that we saw, and I'm like, oh, no, 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 that's it. this is it, I saw, I saw, I, I, yeah, I know this is going to be it, because what we saw in New York was the musical version, and um, ironically enough, they were singing in this language called English, um, which is what Jennifer and I speak, and last night, it was the opera version, <laughs> which, is, which is in a language, also Italian, which, I mean, I have Italian heritage, but I don't, the only word I know in Italian is forget about it. And so we, it was less than enjoyable because we did not understand what they were saying, right? And so today I just want to be real, real clear about the most important thing in the world, that Jesus died on a cross for us. And it's really, um, it's really our message as a church. So... Uh, and I, and I just, I just want to pause for some, sometimes it just hits me. I cannot believe that I get to, I cannot believe that I get to preach the gospel. I just cannot believe how good God has been to me that I get to, I get to talk to you guys about Jesus, not about my thoughts or not about how to live life more functionally, but about Jesus. So well, let's pray before we begin reading. God, as we, as we open up your book, uh, I do pray, God, that it would become alive to us. I pray that you would take, you would take this um, very inadequate vessel, myself, and that you would use me and that you'd, you'd speak through me and in spite of me. And I pray today that you would help, help us understand more clearly as a church what Jesus did for us. And for those that are in this room that maybe have not really responded to that and, and made it their own and as a result, become new creations in you and receive salvation. I pray that it would become clear to them today by your grace. And then I pray, God, that you would give them the passion and the, the desire to respond to you in faith. And, and God, I pray that that would happen today. I, I pray that people that are in this room who do not truly know Christ as their Lord and as their Savior and as their King and as their all-consuming joy, I pray that that would become clear, and I pray that you would, you would move upon them to respond in a way so that they would give their life with reckless abandon to the gospel and to the creator of the earth, and that they would find their true hope and joy and purpose in that. And for, for those of us that are here today that have already done that, but yet maybe it's become a little bit dry and you know, sort of routine, I pray that you would stir in us a remembrance of the cross and a 
new appreciation for your work on the cross and a passion and a gratitude which then you will use to draw other people to you. And there's nothing more satisfying than being used by you to bring others to you. And so I, I pray that that would happen and I pray that we'd center ourselves on the work of, of Jesus on the cross and that that would compel us as we leave this place. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's pick up in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read for a little while, make a couple points. Read for a little while, make a couple points. And then, and then we'll wrap it up. This is a letter written to people very much like us, probably uh, gathered together in a, in a house. Uh, it's, a, it's a group of churches that are over a region, kind of modern-day Greece, Turkey, in that area. And these are probably people who were not Jewish. They were Christians that have come to faith in Christ, and, and uh, they're, they're just learning the gospel. Paul probably uh, had a part in planting this church, and now he's writing back to them. And uh, this young man, Timothy, who Paul has raised up as his associate in ministry, is probably the pastor of this church or this region of churches, or maybe he's the overseer. And so he's writing to these people, and he's clearly, clearly expounding the gospel of Jesus to them. And, and chapter 2, by the way, just so you know, is, is one of the most um, theologically rich chapters in the entire Bible. I think it's one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible because it, it clearly spells out the gospel in Ephesians 2 and then the implications of the gospel. In fact, the first 10 verses in Ephesians chapter 2 are all one sentence in Greek. And it's just Paul is so excited about the gospel, he just lays it out in one sentence. But we'll We'll pause where we put uh, periods in for English. So let me read. And he writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let me just pause there and I'm going to make this point a little bit more. But, but when we read kind of a heavy statement like that, this pretty, pretty, pretty hard, uh, it, it's, it's not our general nature to read that personally. It's kind of easy to think, well, he's writing to these Ephesians who, who they were some pagan, you know, freaks that were doing their, their pagan stuff. And so he's probably talking about that. But, but the reason that this has been preserved by the Holy Spirit and is in the Bible is because it, it's also written to us. It's written to a first century audience, but it's written to us as well. And so I think naturally when we read something like this, we don't necessarily personalize it. We tend to think, oh, well, somebody else. But, but I think it's helpful to read this is when he says you, he's talking about me and he's talking about you and that we are by nature children of wrath. Now, this is a wildly, wildly, wildly unpopular theme, especially in um, the Tony Robbins infested America. And if you don't know who Tony Robbins is, um, you've obviously never flipped through infomercials late at night because you couldn't go to sleep. He's sort of the self-help guru guy with the big white teeth, and he's always got these linen shirts on, and he does like these little self-help seminars, and he's got all these beautiful people by him at the beach, and he's like, you know, you can do it, the power of positive, you know, energy. Are you guys, you, you guys aren't infomercial people at all? I, I, anyway, um, it, it, but, yeah, I don't have time for that, but the point is, 
is that, is that we live kind of in a culture of self-esteem where the general message is that we are pretty good folks and God kind of owes us something, right? We do not think of God as being just and being one who punishes disobedience. And we don't think, I mean, the, the whole theme of, of the wrath of God is completely foreign to us and wildly unpopular, wildly unpopular. The only problem with it is that the Bible is full of it. The Bible is full of it. It's full of this, this God who is just and righteous and, 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 and desiring to, to make his glory known in this earth. Now, there's good news here, which we'll get to in just a second, but, but, but God, is, God is holy, and he's just, and he's righteous, and without his intervening grace, we're, we're, we're hopeless. You know that phrase, in fact, we probably all, many of us probably think it's in the Bible. God, I'll let you finish it. God helps those who, that's actually not in the Bible. And that's actually completely counter to what the Bible says. God helps the helpless, not those who can help themselves. And that's what the next verse says. So we were like children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse four, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Look, I, I don't, this is what I love about this verse is it doesn't need explanation. I think all it needs is a slow reading and you, you, you get you get the, the, I want to say profoundness, but I don't think that's a word. Profundity is that you get the, you get the amazing gravity of this truth. Let me, let me just read that again. But God, being rich in, the, okay, who, who's, doing, who's, the, who's doing the verbing here? Who's doing the action? Who's, remember, we were dead, right? Who's doing the work? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That needs no explanation. That means that if you are a Christian here today, it's not because you figured it out, it's because God resuscitated you, he revived you, he resurrected you, he did like Jesus did to Lazarus, he spoke and you came back to life. And the, so what are the implications of that? The implications of that are, oh God, thank you, gratitude, mercy, humility, humility. Our culture absolutely speaks against humility. It's a self-help, self-esteem, self-self-culture, but the Bible cuts us at our knees and says, God did it. God did it. God did it. That, that's, that's an unbelievably important concept to be a Christian who understands 
Now, let me, let me be clear. You can become a Christian and not clearly understand that. But understanding that clearly, greatly, greatly, greatly fuels your life as a Christian because you're humble and you're incredibly thankful and you realize that it's all about God and not about us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let me just pause here and, um, and say that, that we, we also have, we're, we're so self-absorbed in our culture is that we generally think that this is going to um, mess some of you up. And um, in fact, it might, it, might, it might solve some of our space problems and because you won't like this. Um, God did not primarily save us because he loves us. God saves us because he loves himself. And the most God-glorifying thing that he deemed he could do is save us. So God loves us because he loves himself. And here it says, it says that he saved us and then he seated us with heaven, in heavenly places so that, that's a conjunction, right? Conjunction, junction, What's your function? Why did he do that? Why did he save you? So that in the coming ages he might show something about himself, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Yes, God loves you. God loves you so much. You can't, we can't even understand how much God loves us. But, but salvation is more about God's love for his glory because he loves us, because he loves himself first. And the most self-glorifying, self-loving thing he can do is save helpless sinners who can't even find their belly button that that's that's amazing love that's amazing grace so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by listen this is one of the most important sentences or verses in the whole bible for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Go back to verse 8 there where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, and if you circle that little this there, the this that he's referring to is the previous sentence. For by grace you have been saved through faith. The grace... And the faith that we have is the this in the next sentence, which is not our own doing. So even the faith that you have, that you exercise in response to God, is given to you by God and is, in fact, a gift. And so if you're a Christian here today, or if you're thinking about being, here, being a Christian here today, it is all God, all grace, and that should produce zero pride in us, total humility, and unbelievable graciousness in our hearts. Isn't, isn't, that, isn't that amazing? I mean, isn't that amazing? And then, then he tags on verse 10, which I think is so important. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. In other words, in other words God saved you for a purpose, and it was really more than just kind of like coming to church on a Sunday. It's, it's to be part of this growing 
global body of Christ that glorifies God and does stuff and, 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 and does things for him so that we become people that through us God draws people to himself. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 11. Therefore, there's another conjunction. Therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the same time, at, the, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, now I realize that those last couple sentences, you think I just went... Um, opera Italian mode there. You're like, what in the world is that talking about? What this is saying is, is that you've got these two groups of people. You've got the Gentiles who were the Old Testament, I'm sorry, the, the Jews who were the Old Testament people of the promise that had this mark called circumcision, which God enacted through this man named Abraham, and it was the physical mark, it was the mark of God's covenant, and, and in order to be in the covenant people, you had to be circumcised. Aren't you glad that that is no longer a requirement for church membership? I mean, that would be kind of awkward, would it not be? And it would be even more awkward for me because I, I guess the priests are the guys that have to check that and just, I don't know, I don't want to get into that. But anyway, the, 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 the <laughs> I mean, think of, all right, all right, anyway. So, so, so he's saying that, don't get caught up on that, that term, circumcision is this mark now, that, that qualifies these people as, Jew, as God's people, it is, it is the thing that kind, of, that, kind of, that kind of shows that they're God's people. And then you've got the rest of the world, which is Gentiles. And so what he's saying now is, is that in the Old Testament, you know, this mark was the way. And then there was a separation. There was this dividing wall between those who were God's people and who were not God's people. And what he's about to unpack here is that now, that through faith in Christ is this new circumcision. In fact, in Romans chapter 2, it says that the circumcision is no longer of the flesh, but it's of the heart and the spirit. Now, in Christ, this dividing wall between God's people who have this mark and those that don't has been abolished in Christ, and now salvation is for anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, whether they are Jew or Gentile. That's what he is unpacking here. So he continues... That, that you were once strangers, you had no hope, and you were without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us to both God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He kills the hostility between the Jew and the Gentile. He kills the hostility between man and God by his work on the cross. Now, when you receive Christ when you acknowledge Christ's work on the cross. God, remember that wrath we talked about a few, a few verses ago? God is no longer hostile towards us because he took out, not, not just because he said, oh, it doesn't really matter. You know, they're pretty good people. They're Americans. They pay their taxes. And, you know, they, occasionally they, they help old ladies across the street. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, nah, I'm just gonna forget about it, whatever. 
No, that's not, that's not it. God takes out his hostility on himself by pouring out the wrath that should have been ours on Jesus. In fact, there's this really, really heavy passage in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 53 that prophetically talks about what Jesus did on the cross. And it says that it pleased God to crush the son. In other words, God is not just making light of our sin and he's saying, ah, well, you know, you graduated from college, you got a pretty decent job, no felonies on your record, occasional cusses, couple parties back in the fraternity days, but you know, you're pretty good now. You're pretty good now. And in fact, I've noticed, Johnny, that you've been coming to church on a relatively regular basis and so, ah, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just okay, okay, okay. I was, I was wondering when you were going to come around, Johnny. I was wondering that's the majority view of how God goes from being displeased to pleased with us. But that is not the message of the scriptures. And, and understanding this meal and understanding it well has so much to do with understanding that God took out his hostility on himself and the person of Jesus on the cross so that now we could be at peace with him. That is stunning. That is stunning, and that, that should produce in us a, an awe and a humility and a gratitude. In verse 16, and might reconcile us to both God and one body through the cross, thereby, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. In verse 19, so then, because of this, Another conjunction, because of this, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. I mean, think, have, you, have you ever walked into a room, maybe the room today when you walked in and you just kind of look at everybody, they look like they have it together, and you just kind of feel like you're on the outside? That this scripture says that you, if you have received Christ in this way, you are no longer a stranger or an alien, but a fellow citizen with the saints and a member of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This verse is saying something incredibly profound. It's saying that it's saying that the worst rank, vile sinner in the world, when he responds to Christ, he all of a sudden or she all of a sudden becomes qualified and part of the, of the family of God. And let me just stop here and say that um, this lie that the enemy whispers into a lot of people is that you, you know, maybe you've done something that can't really be atoned for. That's an absolute lie. That's an absolute lie. No matter what you have done, no matter where you've been, no matter how long you have done it, God saves sinners. That's, that's the first thing. Okay, so, so you are now part of this body. 
The second thing is, is that if you've been a pretty good church kid all your life and you kind of grew up and you, and you just never have really felt the power of God's justice and the power of God's righteousness and the seriousness and the gravity of what God did on the cross, then today maybe, I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but I'm saying that maybe you need to, you need to get your cage rattled a little bit so that you, with all humility, will say that I was once a son of disobedience following the course of this world and God did it all. He rescued me. He rescued me from a life of rebellion. But it's hard for us to, it's hard for us to think that way. And I think this is a challenge for most of us because we tend to think of sin as these big, huge issues. Let me give, let me give you an example. Okay. Um, there's about a, 20, 30-foot walk from the offices at the point to my car. And a lot of times I'm kind of the last one to leave and, and sometimes there'll just be kind of people walking around in the office complex. And let's say I got out of my car or got out of my office at the point, closed the door, locked it, and I was walking about 20 feet to my car and somebody in a trench coat saddled up next to me. I'd never seen him before. And he says to me, uh, excuse me, buddy, you got a minute? Yeah, yeah walking me to the car. He says, oh, let me get that door for you. He unlocks it for me. He says, hey, um, can I interest you in um, some crystal meth? Now, at that moment, I'm not going to say, huh. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I think, yeah, how much, what is a dime bag? I don't know, I don't even know how you, the fact that I said dime bag reveals that I have some history in that world, but I, I don't, no, no. But I mean, what, 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 I mean, you know what I'm saying? We tend to think, we tend to just say, ah, well, you know, it's just whatever. You know, but that's not the way sin and temptation hits us, right? I mean, there may be some former drug addicts in here, and there may be some, some people that have been just in just wild stuff. But this culture that, 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 that makes us, see, this is, this is so important. This culture that makes us think we're pretty good lulls us to sleep and makes the average person in America think that they don't really need to be rescued. And what happens is that then they just sort of add on religion rather than respond in faith and trust with their whole life life to Jesus, and then it just becomes kind of religion rather than salvation, because we tend to think, oh, I'm, I'm not tempted by, by those things. I mean, we're tempted, we're tempted by this vile, vile, insidious lie that we're pretty much okay, and since we're better than the guy who might fall to that temptation or is falling to that temptation, that we're just kind of like... Okay, that is far more insidious than any major sin that you can name. There was this preacher back in the early 1900s, I think his name was Barnhouse, and he was a pastor in Philadelphia, and he had this radio program, and he, he told this story about what it would look like in the city of Philadelphia, which was the city where he preached if Satan was in charge, completely in charge of his city. And you know what he said? He said that if Satan were completely in charge of my city, there would be 
no crime. There would be no pornography. There would be no drunkenness. There would be no drug use. There would be no kidnapping. There would be there would be no disorderly conduct. There would be no, every bar would be shut down. There would be absolutely zero corruption in the government. And the churches would be full. Every time the doors were open, the churches would be full on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night. They'd be packed. So long as Christ was not preached. And the sinner wasn't called to respond to Jesus. That's the trap for most of us. A Christless Christianity, zero weight of gravity of the cross, and a religion that just kind of makes us feel like we're okay. But the scriptures say that by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Bow your heads with me. Lord, as we prepare to receive communion and spend some time responding to you, God, I pray that you'd take feeble words and that you'd cut like a knife with them. I pray two things specifically, that that those that are in here that maybe have thought they were right with you, but by the graciousness of your Holy Spirit has become clear to them that they are not right with you, I pray that you would do a supernatural work and that you would call a dead person from the grave and that you would speak life into their heart and for that person in here this morning who is even wondering about whether or not that is going on in their life, I pray that you would help them realize that that is, in fact, very likely evidence that you are right now bringing them to life in the gospel. I pray that the lie of the enemy that wants to exclude people and say that, oh, well, you, you, you're disqualified because of this, I pray that that, that, that lie would be refuted and those, those horrible words would fall to the ground. And I pray that that person would, I pray that person would respond to you with faith that you have already given them as a gift and they would exercise it and they would turn from self-reliance. They would turn from this broken system worldview that says that they pretty much are okay and that they can kind of get by on their own if they just sort of attend church and don't commit any felonies. God, I pray that you would, help them turn from that, and then they would trust completely in what Jesus did on the cross. It doesn't mean that they have everything figured out, or it doesn't even mean that there's no doubt. In fact, faith isn't really faith unless there's some, there's some doubt in there. That's what makes faith faith. Is it's, it's responding to the unseen. It's, it's, it, faith is filled with doubt. And so I pray, I pray that person would turn from self-reliance and trust and faith in Christ. And they would become born again to They'd become resurrected. They'd become a new creation. They would be saved. They'd, they'd become your child truly. They'd go from being a son or a daughter of disobedience 
to a son or a daughter of grace and salvation. And I pray that if we're doing anything or if we're giving off any error in this environment that makes that difficult for that person to do, I pray that we would, I pray that would just fall to the ground and I pray just amazing spiritual honesty would rise up in this place and we would, we would truly respond to you. So for that, for that person, God, I pray that you'd do that right now. And God, for, for, for people like me who tend to minimize and who tend to just kind of feel like, you know, I'm a Christian because I grew up in Western civilization and I, I'm a pretty decent person. And basically my subconscious default is that, God, you kind of owe me something. You see, you kind of owe me something because I'm a whole lot better than the guy who is tempted by the things that would never trip me up. Would you help me today to remember what it was like to be without God, without hope in this world, and would that produce in me worship? Would it produce in me passion? Would it produce in me seeing who you are? Would it shake me out of, out of, out of lukewarmness? And God, would it... Would it, would it reignite a passion in me to just glorify you in the everyday things of my life and to speak about you, to, to, to lift you up in my relationships and in, in my work and in, in, in my interactions with people? God, would it, just, would, it re, would it just reignite a flame within people like me to be humbly humbly aware and then graciously worshipfully respondent to you God would you do that in in people like me and as we remember the cross and as we think about what Jesus did for us as we take these little chips of bread and this little cup of juice God would would you help us remember the cross would it be or would it be a powerful engagement where we see you face to face I pray this in Jesus name